Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening, Lord. I'm very well, thank you. Here we are, episode 105 on the 29th of January. So this is our last one for January. These months, they fly by, don't they? I feel like Christmas was a long time ago now, if I'm honest, but it was only, what, four weeks ago we were probably all finishing off mince pies and leftover food. So it's gone incredibly quickly. It really has. And we've got very little preamble this week. Uh, We can fire straight into some news because we've potentially got a long show or maybe we'll just deal with it all very quickly. Uh, I think it's going to be a long main show. So we're going to skip follow-up. We're going to have a little bit of news and then we're going to dive right into Apple's big news that, that they've announced in between us recording, um, which I think will be a good good conversation. Hopefully we've digested it all and can comment on it. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, it will be. I will. I have got something to say about Masters of the Air as well, though. So let's have a small media section. Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I have equally seen it. So should we get into news then? Go on, let's do it. So first story, and this one's on 9to5Google, is Beeper the company we talked about uh, repeatedly in the past about would they have iMessage, wouldn't they have iMessage, uh, has just given up now. And there will be no iMessage connections after Apple banned the Macs to, uh, taking part in this. So this isn't really a surprise at this point, is it? It surely can't be a surprise to anybody. Um, I think the more surprising thing was that they tried to make a go of it and they lasted as long as they did trying to hack their way into iMessage. Yeah, I, I feel a bit bad for the student that found this sort of hack into it. I hope somebody's given him a job doing something fairly significant. You, you'd hope, you know, on, on technical merit alone, that he deserves to be doing to, to be employed. Yeah, I mean, fair play to the guy. It was obviously working until it got all this attention from Beeper. And it's a shame. I mean, he certainly got a future as a security hacker of some sort. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, anyway. Should we tell us about Apple Pay in Russia? Yeah, I find this really strange. So this popped up on the register earlier this week, 23rd of Jan, about Russia charging Apple $13.5 million over in-app purchases inside of Russia. And I thought, okay, fair enough. If there is Russian law and Apple are breaching it, and we're going to talk about that a lot more you know, as the show goes on. Fair enough. But I didn't think anybody had to pay Russia anything at the moment because of international sanctions. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Uh, I don't know how any of that works or whether any of this predates that. But I th- I thought it was very odd. I thought there'd be complete sanctions that don't give any money to Russia right now. But yeah, very bizarre, especially Apple. Yeah, I'm surprised by this. Yeah, and Russia's fined Apple before for this kind of thing over in app purchases and the rest of it. So this isn't new. It's just the timing of it feels a bit odd. It may be that it predates the war, but even if it predates the war, surely international sanctions still apply. What's he going to do with what's Putin going to do with thirteen point five million dollars? Nothing. His army. Yeah, nothing good will come of that. So that's no, awful, isn't it? So yeah, com- like you, completely surprised by this. Yeah, another thing that I I think I find surprising, but. I think it's the spin on it I find surprising more than anything. So Hewlett-Packard has a long-standing history of really not wanting you to use third-party ink in their printers. They want you to buy first-party ink, which I'm sure for a little while, about 10 years ago, ink was actually valued higher than gold, uh, if you were to go and buy it. So HP really want you to use their original cartridges. And this is a little story about them pushing A, firmware updates to brick the printers if you put in third-party ones, and B... If you do manage to get them working, they're warning you you're going to get a virus by using third-party ink cartridges. Okay, so I don't like the sound of any of that. I was using third-party cartridges in my HP printer. A firmware update got installed at some point because it's all automatic. And then I go and put in another one from the same packet you know, for a different color that I'd already been using. And it goes, you can't use this cartridge anymore. And I'm like, 
What do you mean? I've bought five cartridges. And it wouldn't let me use the last ones I hadn't put in before the firmware upgrade. And therefore, from then on, I've had to just buy legitimate HP ones. I wonder if there's a workaround for it, but it was not clear to me. And basically, they are forcing you to use first-party cartridges. In relation to our news later on, why? when are the EU going to pick up on this? This is, you know, surely anti-competitive behaviours. So yes. it's not, is it? It's really, really bad. And it's a company that's just sort of circling the drain as far as I'm concerned. I know they make laptops. I know they make all sorts of other bits and pieces. But enforcing this kind of stuff is just nasty, frankly. And peddling the the lie that you're going to get a virus by installing third-party ink cartridges, that's just not good enough. I know The Verge, about six months ago, had a whole thing about if you're going to buy a printer, just that, buy this one black and white brother laser printer that everybody's buying, that everybody's got, because it's reliable, it works, you don't need to think about it. I'm almost at the point of ejecting my two Hewlett-Packard printers and going for one brother one. You know, do you know what? I probably wouldn't rush to replace a H- my HP with another one. I'll, I'll wait until it gives up the ghost. Did you know, though, HP recently purchased Juniper Networks? So their HP Enterprise division is actually doing very well. And yeah, they've acquired Juniper. So they're in working space and server space. Also doing very well. You'd have thought they wouldn't need to nickel and dime in the printer space. But I guess if you've, on your profit and loss sheet, whether you've got printers as their own line, they've probably got to wash their own face. And therefore, they're trying to g- generate some growth, I guess. I suppose in relation to everything else that's going on, it's not a surprise the company's trying to keep you inside of their ecosystem. You know, I think there's a lot of that going on at the moment, be it from Google or Apple or Hewlett-Packard. So I suppose it is what it is, but I don't like it very much. Agreed. Do you want to tell us about Microsoft Bing? Microsoft Bing. So what was Bing doing? I do. Hang on. Sorry. I'm getting the... uh cook up and then um, I need to register an account to read this article on Bloomberg so I can't actually read this one. Ah oh, well just to summarize that as part of the Digital Markets Act Microsoft has managed to avoid being listed you know as one of these companies that needs to be compliant with the Digital Markets Act as far as Bing and Edge go anyway so obviously the market share of Bing and the market share of Edge is solo Edge surprises me slightly. They push it so hard on so many Windows PCs that they're not part of being one of those providers as listed under the Digital's Market, Digital Market site. This surprises me. It does surprise me to a point. Edge comes with with all PCs, but people are so ingrained on going to Chrome. I think the first thing people do is open up Edge and download Chrome and then close Edge. I like Edge. I think it's very good. And I try to push it a lot more in our organization, but the users just aren't there for it. Yeah, I I do exactly the same thing. Frankly, when I get Safari, I immediately go and download Firefox. Or I, It's not my app of the week this week, but it might be another week. Flurp is my current browser of choice. I, I, I say that just to make you see the face you made, Chris. Flurp. Flurp. So it's a spin of, of Firefox. So in the same way, Edge is a spin of Chrome, is a spin of Chromium, is a spin of Arc browser, all these other things. Flurp, which is made by a Japanese company, is an open source spin on on Mozilla Firefox and it supports Firefox. It shows as Firefox's user agent. You can go in and spoof the user agent to be Internet Explorer or Chrome on Windows. So sometimes for those particularly stubborn websites, you can get it to come up. But it's just an interesting thing. On a Mac, at least, it might be worth checking out Flirp. But I'll recommend it maybe as an app of the week another week. Okay. Well, that's going to bring us nicely into Mozilla then. That is going to bring us nicely into Mozilla. And just this, I thought this was an interesting thing. Mozilla have been quite quiet in amongst all the 
anti-competitive, antitrust things that, again, we, we're, we're hinting heavily. We're going to be talking about this a lot more shortly. But this week, they've published this Platform Tilt uh, website, which is available in the show notes, of course. And it lists all the sort of anti-competitive or troublesome practices that they've faced on a variety of platforms. We're getting Firefox up and running in those things. So if you click on this, and it's like tickets, effectively. It's like a Jira workflow or something like that. App Store prevents third-party browser engines. Open. Support for third-party multi-process applications on iOS. Importing browser data on iOS. There's a whole list of these things that are open. Beta testing on iOS against Apple. And then it has some against Google. Importing browser data on Android. And Microsoft. Setting default browser on Windows. I think this is a fairly legitimate list of grievances for them. I have done in quite a nice way. I I think it is done quite nice. I thought it would be a lot longer if i'm honest i thought they'd have a lot more gripes i know some of these are quite big so you know not each of the entries is treated equal but i thought it'd be a much bigger list it's longer for apple than it is for google or microsoft true so it is interesting i think it's one to bookmark and keep an eye on you know as time passes to see if any of these go away you can see three for google three for microsoft which do you think will get crossed off first yeah will, will apple catch up that's the question We'll have to see. We'll have to see. We skipped by it, but we have actually got one little bit of follow-up we might want to mention now we've come at the end of the news. And I won't break it out in the follow-up, but we have a YouTube channel now. And uh, if anybody actually wants to see Chris and mine's ugly mugs and maybe some slightly substandard audio compared to what you normally get on the podcast, then by all means visit our YouTube channel. If you if you Google Wake From Sleep YouTube, you'll find us. And you've got another way to watch us, listen to us, do whatever it is you want to do. Yeah, hopefully my office is tidying enough. I haven't done anything, but yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? You you, you become a lot more conscious, I think, of what you're wearing, what, what's in the background. But um, yeah, if anyone wants to check it out on YouTube, do. I find it strange people listen to podcasts on YouTube, but we've got the video there of us recording live. So I guess it's like the bootleg version. There's no edits or anything. So hopefully we sound okay and it, it, it comes across well, but you'll hear our ums and our ahs and maybe a cough or a drink blowing noses, holding phones up to cameras. So there will be something that we can maybe reference for anyone who watches the YouTube feed. But anyway, there it is. And at some point, we'll include it in the links for the show too. Yeah, that's a good idea. Should we move on to media? Let's move on to media. And one very quick story. Apparently, Apple is going to shrink its kids' division. So making TV content, movie content for kids is actually going to lay some people off. This doesn't really surprise me. I don't think the kids' content on Apple TV Plus has been a smash hit. I was going to say, what kids division? Because it kind of felt like they did a couple of kid things, but they weren't really releasing a lot of kiddie-orientated content, would, would be my view. I have children. We've watched a couple of things on it, but there's not really much there, not in the same quantity or cadence that the you know the other TV shows are being released, more for the adult audiences. I think they found their niche. Rather than trying to be an everything you know service, I think they've realised that they're more that HBO target is is where they're at and then they've got a bit of sports on the side haven't they yeah i think you're probably right they did try i think they have the peanut stuff the snoopy peanut stuff yeah they're in the back catalog of peanuts and they did do some kids tv show but it was awful i think john laster was one of the creators of it but it was awful you know the, the quality of the graphics the story just not one part of it was good so i'm not surprised i think they're better to focus on what you do well I think that's fair enough. At the same time, if you want to grow an audience, then you kind of need to sort of stick with it, don't you? So maybe it's just something they think there's no point in trying to pursue this. There are dedicated children's channels. 
Disney have certainly a huge amount of, of children's content. Netflix don't have so much, but then I don't really go looking for it. So I, it's maybe just not a growth industry for a big streaming service. Yeah, I'll be honest, if you log in to the children's mode on the Netflix app, it's pretty disappointing. There's not a huge amount there. I've looked before and my children are kind of in the middle now where they're starting to get into slightly younger adult material. So not not for me, but maybe they'll come back to this. Like I say, they've got more than enough they can do with with the areas they're currently exploring. And there's nothing wrong with being, you know, the, the HBO of 2024. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And who knows, they could just go and buy someone down, down the road a little bit if they need to. They have all the money in the world. So if it becomes a priority for them, then they can go ahead and do it, I guess. Yep, no, that is true. Once they've conquered the rest of the world, they can circle back, can't they? They can. Moving on, and I think this is a story more for me than you, because unlike the rest of the world, you didn't like Barbie. Ryan Gosling got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, but neither the director Greta Gerwig nor Margot Robbie as Barbie did. And that's probably the plot for Barbie too. Yet again, the patriarchy wins and women get overlooked. And that's terrible. Now, I want to take nothing away from Ryan Gosling. His performance as Ken is superb. His dancing and singing and everything in that film is terrific. But Margot Robbie absolutely knocks it out of the park in that film. And if anybody deserved a Best Actress nomination, it was Margot Robbie. And Greta Gerwig did a fantastic thing bringing it to it. Margot Robbie was also producer on that film. For its success alone, even if you didn't like it, it had a look, it was well produced, it was well received, it launched at possibly the hardest time ever with Oppenheimer as well and turned in a massive box office showing and to get snubbed like this I just think is appalling behaviour on behalf of the Oscars Yeah, whilst I commented last week this this film was not for me I don't disagree with you and it seems strangely ironic that the man got the nomination and the female production side of it did not so they do seem to have lent into, into the stereotypes a little bit here which is disappointing and like you say maybe this is the the scope for, for Barbie too, you know, get the, we got snubbed at the Oscars. Quite possibly. The thing that amused me was there was apparently a report from an Australian police force looking into a theft of an Oscar from Margot Robbie, which I just thought was quite fun on behalf of the Australian police force. Yeah, that is pretty good. Yeah, she was robbed. Moving on, Masters of the Air. I think we both watched it. Yeah, so I have watched it quite late yesterday. I thought, actually, you know what, I've got an hour. I watched the first episode. I quite enjoyed it. It was all right. It wasn't as revolutionary as I was thought it was going to be. I don't know if that's fair to say. The the 3D visuals, amazing, to be fair. You know, my normal gripe with Apple TV, I think, is with anything computer generated. It can be a bit disappointing. I thought it was very good. The acting was very good. The picture quality is great. But I don't know. It hasn't quite captured me in what I was expecting. I think I really expected to be grabbed. And maybe I'm misremembering the Band of Brothers TV show, but... Um, what was your view? Pretty similar, actually. I'm mostly with you on the visuals. I don't think the bombers on the ground look very good at all when they're actually sort of taxiing and things like that. I don't think they do a very good job on that. The air stuff and the in-air stuff for the crew is terrific. For me, it suffers. I've watched both episodes that have been released in the new one out on Wednesday, I think. For me, it suffers in Band of Brothers built you up with them through their training and you got to know the personalities and you understood who the actors were and who the characters were. They had helmets on, but you could tell who they were. And the whole first episode through training with David Schwimmer as the commanding officer, you kind of were rooting for them against that sort of character. And this doesn't have that. And particularly when they're in the air, I don't know who's who. They've got oxygen masks on, they've got helmets on. I'm not entirely sure which character's which. They haven't done a great job of introducing them. So while the in-air combat stuff is very tense and terrific and really well done. 
it's lacking the characterization, and I think that's why it feels a little flatter to me than what came before. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. You're, you're not as invested. And yeah, you are being thrown into the middle of a story, in essence. So, And there's a bit of going back in time and, and back and forth. So it's good, but it's not that HBO standard that I was just talking about in the, in the, in the previous piece. But yeah, it's good. It's good TV, but sadly not fantastic TV. Yeah, it's the kind of thing I'm watching because I know it's worthy. Not quite Killers of the Flower Moon worthy, but worthy rather than actually being a compelling TV show for itself, which it shares with the criminal record show that I was watching is that it's good, but it's not great. You know, it's a six, seven out of ten. It's not, it's, it's, com- it's compelling enough to keep watching it, but if they cancelled it, I wouldn't be bothered. It's, it's that kind of level at the moment. Now, that may change. It's a shame, isn't it? But yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we would move on to games normally, unless you've got any other media you want to, uh, to mention. I have no more media. I don't have a lot to say in games, unless you want to talk about the latest update to Gran Turismo. Yeah, I can't really help you there. You don't want to drive a Suzuki Jimny in Gran Turismo. That's what came in the, in the latest update. That sounds terrific. No, no, I really don't, no. Well, there we go then. So that's games done for the week. <laughs> Fair enough. Should we move on and do a main show and we'll see how long we go with that? Yeah, we can, we can but try. So in the main show, we're going to try and unpack what Apple have announced and what they haven't really announced in the latest round of I, predominantly iOS betas. So they've last week, I think it was about Thursday last week, they've announced iOS 17.4 beta. So we're towards the tail end of January. They're expecting this beta to go live, in essence, in early March. There's a couple of minor system changes that we're going to tackle first. And then we're really going to talk about um, how they're trying to compete or live up to the DMA in Europe, which is the Digital Markets Act, and what they're doing to change their their policies, in essence, to meet the requirements of the DMA so they can continue to be a business in Europe. And it's been quite an interesting, I guess, three, four days to unpack what they've announced. It really has. I mean, we can do the less controversial stuff first, I guess. Sorry, I say less controversial, but some fairly reasonable updates that they've brought along to 17.4. So... The first of these, and this is 17.4 beta 1, of course all these things are open to change, you can get on these things if you enroll on the development train. We've said it before, for most cases you shouldn't be on a beta train, you should wait for the final thing, so these things are subject to change. The first part of this is that apparently Apple is continuing to work on AI-powered Siri messages with help from ChatGPT. That's not particularly surprising, I think we've been able to see the writing on the wall for that particular thing for a couple of months now. I wonder if they're doing some stuff in the background reading the article. It sounds like they may be just gathering some data. I wonder if they're, they're doing something there to see maybe how chat GTP would, would be used and what the responses would be. So it sounds like they may be getting some analytics. Yeah, and they've built into this a thing called the Siri Summarization Private Framework that makes calls to OpenAI's chat GPT API. Open chat GPT API. That's too many acronyms right there. So... It's obviously for internal testing, but people, as usual, Steve Troutensmith and others have, have unearthed this within the code for iOS 17.4.1 beta 1. So, yeah, it looks like that we're going to get some of this kind of stuff beginning to appear. And, you know, it, for these features, I think a, a large language model is, is fine, actually, for summarization, for things like that, for transcripts of podcasts, which we're going to talk about as well in a minute. ChatGPT works well with that. You're not actually asking it to give you facts uh, when you're dictating text messages and things like that so this is good yeah it's like a closed answer isn't it in essence here's a piece of text can you summarize it for me rather than can you go out and tell me who was the second president of the united states of america or something like that 
Yeah, I think that's reasonable. So fairly unsurprising, not particularly controversial, nice solid start to this little section. Uh, in a similar vein, the second thing that's been found is that for Apple Podcasts, at least, there will be full automatic podcast, podcast transcripts coming to iOS 17.4. And again, I think that's a good thing. Great thing. And it looks really good. How their implementation looks really good. It seems a long time ago since... Did we have a tape that played when you used to listen to podcasts in one of the very skeuomorphic podcast apps? Probably iOS 4 or 5, somewhere around that area. No, it looks fantastic. This is a great, great feature release. Um, really, really good. One side note, I don't know if you've seen this, if you're running it at all, but in the music app, in the podcast app, instead of it saying listen now, that tab's going to be, be renamed home. And it was the same in um, the TV app. The first tab is now called home. I preferred listen now because to me it was, yes, I want to go and listen to something. I'll go there. So I should prefer the listen now name, but I assume that there's a reason they're moving it to home, but they seem to be doing that across all the apps now. I think this is a good thing. It highlights text as as the presenters are reading along. You know, you're able to search within it. You're you, you know, the, it gives you a lot of a lot more features for it. And us as podcasters don't need to upload a transcript at the same time. And from the little clip that Jason Snell has shown on Six Colors that we've linked to, it's got the name spelled correctly as well. You know, it says Mike Hurley, it says Jason Snell, which is something that that, that transcriptions often suffer with. The ones we do internally for this podcast really don't get on well with my accent. They do a better job with yours, but Scottish people are clearly struggling. So I'm quite impressed with that, just in that. So I am vaguely tempted to install the beta for this purpose, but A, what I've just said about betas in the first place, and B, I don't use Apple Podcasts. Yeah, me neither, but I'm assuming there's a good proportion that do. And I'm assuming it uses some smarts. So if it does say Mike, maybe it's gone and looked at you know the metadata it's got around the podcast so it sounds quite good and it looks like i say it looks a great implementation yeah i'd agree with that the next big feature that looks like it's going to improve at least that came with for ios 17.3 for us is they're going to update stolen device protection so this is going to be extra safeguards in that is that right yeah so that you can basically say always have an hour delay even if you're in a place that you deem as you know, a secure place like my home, you know, because you could be in a, a densely populated area like a flat or you could work in, you know, a densely populated office. Somebody could steal your device and just be in the next flat and, you know, change things. So I think this this makes sense. Um, I'd probably be comfortable leaving that on too. Oh, yeah. If you, if you work in King's Cross Station or something like that and you've got a couple of hundred thousand people going past every day, then you might want your workplace to be designated a little unsafe, really. Yeah, I think this is a no-brainer. I've, I think they've done a really good job with stolen device protection, I must say. I agree. It's a shame it can't go further and other things sort of inherit this as well. Banking apps or, or whatever else, to have that sort of level of protection built into them would be a useful thing to have. But I, you know, they can only do what they can do. Yeah, I think it will, it will grow though over time, I'd have thought. It will. Should we get to the controversial stuff? Yeah, so alongside these couple of minor features and at the time of recording they have just launched the mac os and the watch os versions and the tvs versions are out so they're probably all quite minor but the, the big noise is around ios and predominantly around iphones and so how they're trying to match the uh, european dma as we, as we mentioned so apple just put up a press release on their website quite a big press release and we've put a link in the show notes to it i'm annoyed that they didn't do a video again uh, same with the vision pro why aren't you you're doing a video have somebody stand up and explain it talk us through it talk us through your thinking and that is frustrating i think because it would be good to understand some of their thinking the decisions they've made and put i know they're gonna put marketing spin on it but put your spin on it but stand by your decisions rather than just 
put out a press release and then leave everything to interpretation. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, before we really get into this, it amuses me that Apple have put out all the stuff as a response to the DMA. And they're now in a position that a lot of the developers have been in over the years where they submit a release to the App Store. And then who knows what Apple thinks? Who knows if you're going to get accepted? Who knows if it's the right thing or not? I presume maybe they do know a little bit more internally. They must have had some pre-discussions with the EU about this. But yeah, they're now waiting and seeing to see how this is going to be received. Which... So let's just briefly talk around the timing of this and then we can get into the into the weeds. So they've announced it now, late January, right? They've got to be compliant by early March. So whilst by the letter of the law, Apple may be compliant, they are not giving developers much time, especially when they've just launched the Vision Pro and you want your developers, you know, developing for your new platform. If developers do want to do something different in the EU and take advantage of these policy changes, they've got, what, not quite two months to do it. No, not even that, five weeks which is ridiculous. Now, Apple must know if what they're putting out there is roughly right. But again, the EU could go, no, that's wrong. You've got to change it. Um, and it doesn't give them long to react. It just seems a very short time frame for everybody, whether it's Apple getting it out the door or developers adopting it. It just, I don't get why it's such a short time frame. They should have really announced some of this three months ago. If it wasn't going to be a WWDC, and I get why they didn't, because they didn't want to take the shine off it all. They should have announced this a few months ago. Look, this is coming. This is what we're doing. Everything's going to, you know, start coming out. And But they've saved it all for one big release, which I just think is completely wrong. Yeah, and again, this is primarily on the iPhone. It doesn't really affect the iPad so much at this point, or the Mac, or the Watch, or the t- or TV. And let's just be really specific for a moment. What we're talking about here is allowing alternative app stores and new app store terms and conditions, allowing alternative payment options, so access to other banks' wallets and the NFC chip, allowing third-party browsers on the platform and third-party browser updates, some changes to gaming apps, and then some other minor stuff, as we've already talked about. So minor, we haven't even mentioned it, like new emoji and things like that. But the big, big controversial part of this is the alternative app stores and the new app store terms. And as you say, it's been a huge tranche of documentation dropped on people with not a lot of time to think about it. And you sent this to me last Thursday. I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I went off and watched some some media on the TV and I came back and I actually had time to read everybody's takes on this the next day. So I kind of came into it without a good or a bad feeling about it, whereas I guess you were keeping up as it was going along. What was your first sort of take from the community as this was dropping? So my f- my first view is, oh, some of this looks looks pretty good. In that, oh look, you can now have live street. You can have game streaming app, um, and so Microsoft can use it to stream cloud games to your iOS device, um, and they can have one app and lots of games. Whereas historically, that had to be multiple apps. You know, an app for every game that you wanted to stream. So I was like, oh, that sounds pretty good. And then I read, okay, so let's talk about the browsers. Browsers now, you know, Google Chrome, for example, doesn't have to use Apple's rendering engine on iOS. It can now use their own Chrome rendering engine. I was like, okay, that sounds pretty good. And it's like, oh, that's just within the EU. And that's when it's like, oh, okay, that's everything's just within the EU. Sadly, the UK has left the EU, and therefore we don't really get any to see any of these. I do wonder whether Apple are using this as a test bed for rolling this out wider, because obviously this could have a massive impact on their services revenue that they love to discuss every quarter as it as it goes up. So I, w- I wonder whether, yeah, this is the test bed. Let's prove it works in the EU. But if that's their thinking, why don't they say that? Again, there's a lot open to interpretation. So as it was being rolled out, you quickly glance at you, and go, 
Okay, so this sounds quite good. They've dropped a lot of the commission rates. It's not 30% anymore. It's 10%. And then um, it's 17%. Uh, uh, sorry, it's not 30% for the first year. It's 17%. And then for subsequent years, it's 10%, whereas it used to be 15 So, you know, there's more room here for developers to make money. So, well, that, that sounds pretty good. But it's when you start getting into the detail and the nuances of it, I think that's when some of the issues start arising. And we've already alluded to it, but... Apple are only doing this on the iPhone, which I find is mind-blowing. Why is this not the iPad as well? Um, why the A, why is the DMA so narrow-focused it doesn't involve all platforms? And B, why is Apple only doing it for the phone? What do you think, Rod? Yeah, I got some thoughts about this. And let's be really clear about what you're saying here. They've only changed those commission fees if you stay inside of the Apple App Store. So this is an incentive for existing app and Apple developers to stay using the Apple App Store with the payment systems that are in place there. So if you stay with Apple, we're dropping the fees. And that makes me slightly uncomfortable. That's like a drug dealer, you know, dropping the prices slightly of what's going on. So on the rosy side of the street, you stay on the safe side, you you know, all of Apple's protections, using your tools, using their code signing, and you're having to pay less of your overheads back to Apple as well. So that's kind of a win if you're staying there. But if you are Epic or you are Spotify or you are somebody who's had an issue, Steam, Microsoft, others, who've had an issue with the App Store and want to roll your own, which the DMA is enforcing, now you can. Now there's some caveats around that as well. The first of which is any of the App Stores have to put down a bond of $1 million, not euros, not pounds, not $1 million, to Apple, and that's not Apple taking a million off you. That's just you showing you're good for it. So if you are sued or something like that, or you introduce malware into your thing, Apple have got that million dollars for you. They're then also charging any users a standard fee of 50 cents per user per year for the first million installs offered for free. So that's a bit complicated. What that boils down to is a million installs is nothing. You know, you could get up to that fairly easily if you've got a sufficiently good app, you're not paying anything. The second you go over it, though, at a million installs, you're going to be paying Apple $50,000 a month for the joy of having an app that went viral on an alternative app store. You could see Steam or something like that with its $200,000, $300,000 users on particular games or something like that, absolutely blowing through that instantly. How many users Spotify got? It's more than a million, you know, within the EU. It's a big market. So there's a, there's, there's a dichotomy here between them. Yet yeah, we're doing it. They've opened it up. You can have alternative app stores but it comes with a lot of red tape. As part of that as well are some of the things that already exist within the App Store, such as you must do app signing. So there's a validation process Apple have got. They've had it on the Mac for a long time now. Sort of that semi-trusted install from Apple where they will give you a key for your app to ensure that it's safe to run on a Mac and something like that. So they still get oversight on those apps that are being developed, even for those alternative app stores. So that's where we are. We have cherry terms for eu developers who want to stay within the app store and then a whole bunch of stuff for other uh, people who want alternative app stores because they want to be able to distribute apps that aren't being blessed by apple i.e games emulators alternative things like that and then a payment process that comes with that as well so that's where i land on i think i think i think i've been fair with describing the two sides of that no i, th- I think you have and it, it's quite hard when you look at it to to explain it to try and walk a listener through 
all these changes because so much is changing. So Apple's changing its policy if you distribute apps through its app store. And then they've now opened up, as we were talking about, the marketplace for the likes of Spotify and Microsoft, you know, whoever could, could do that. Nintendo could do it, but you can't just sell your own stuff. You have to sell, you know, third-party content as well. So Nintendo couldn't set their own app you know, marketplace and just sell Nintendo games, they'd have to sell other developers games as well. Same for Spotify or um, there was, you know, rumor would Meta do this and only, you know, release Meta apps through the Meta marketplace, which I I think I do agree with this stance of you should be, you know, if you're going to do a marketplace, it should be more of a generalist marketplace because I think that then stops big companies like Meta ring fencing, you know, their own app store for their own purposes so I, I i think i do agree with that decision so it's just a hard one to explain and now obviously what the problem is say you're an indie developer you're on the new terms you launch an app it goes viral you could very quickly be you know if it hit over a million you you could be bankrupted overnight in essence which is a problem whereas obviously now if you launch a free app and it does incredibly well great there's no uh, comeback on you and to be fair to apple whatever they have or haven't done over the years is they've never charged somebody for hosting a free app because I think they've always used that as their marketing, you know, their free marketing in essence. Look, we've got a billion apps. You can get all these things here. They're free. And a lot, you get a lot of apps that are free. You do get a lot of apps that are free. We're also in the situation where Apple is the gatekeeper for these kinds of things. So lots of apps have been developed that over many months and years we've reported on in this podcast, which Apple just knocks back for whatever reason that it feels like it wants to. Now, some of those could have been incredibly successful apps, and it's very random as to how they're chosen, what's going to get knocked back. Some things are very clear. You know, they're a bit strange about gambling apps, although they allow them. They're a bit strange about in-app purchases for children, although they allow them. So... I, I don't like the sort of randomness of Apple for this. And this would give those developers who have, maybe have got apps sitting in their back pocket the ability to distribute them in another way. And I'm absolutely sure Epic will do this, and I'm absolutely sure Spotify will probably do this, although they don't seem all that happy with the terms of how Apple have replied to this, which we'll come to in a minute as well. But it's fair enough. That was the law. This is how Apple have reacted to it. And they've reacted to it. I'm not surprised in the way Apple have reacted to it. In the most grudging, half-hearted, swinging, nasty way possible. And they're protecting their profits and they're protecting their market dominance. And I understand all that. The, the people I actually feel sorriest for are American developers or British developers or developers in other countries that aren't in the EU who must now be going, hang about, why have they got such glorified terms in the EU whereas we're still paying our 30% here in the States or in Thailand or in the UK? I'm surprised people are as happy with this as they as they are. Yeah, that is problematic. They've taken something um, that was quite straightforward. If you know, it was the same everywhere. Obviously, with different, slightly different tax in different countries. But Apple dealt with a lot of that. They took all the they worried about all the currencies for you. So they took something, applied it across the world, and now here we are. We're going to have a massive carve out for the EU, which you've got to assume is only going to grow over time as more countries look at this and go well why don't we do that and we have this dma policy in more places um like i say it feels like they're beating it but i wonder if i'm assuming somewhere there's a big spreadsheet they've run to work out what what this impact will do for their business you can see it now they're going to have, have to have modeled it but it just yeah there's a lot of strangeness in the implementation take for example 
the browser piece of having your different browser engine. Why is that just limited to the UK? That's not a monetary problem. That's a technical problem. Why wouldn't you allow others to distribute, you know, the Chrome engine in, in Chrome rather than using the Safari engine in essence? I find all of that not very, I don't know, I find it unsettling because they've, they've done it for the streaming games. Why, why not do it for everything? You know, there's a few of these things they could have just opened up, even if it wasn't the monetary piece. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I've got it somewhere. I need to scroll through my notes to say exactly what they said about the about the browser piece. But their their response, you know, here it is. So this is Apple's statement about allowing browser choice for EU users. This change is a result of the DMA's requirements. It means that EU users will be confronted with a list of default browsers before they have the opportunity to understand the options available to them. The screen also interrupts EU users' experience the first time they open Safari intending to navigate to a web page. Well... Wow, how many time, how many years in Windows have have you had this? You, I've, as we said at the top of the show, most people installed it, get the first browser to go and install Chrome. This isn't news to almost anybody who uses the internet that they want to go install their browser of choice. That is the point of competition. But that is, and excuse the language, the pissiest statement I think I've seen a company make in some time. It, inter- it interrupts you once, not every time, just once. So I don't think this is a bigger deal, is it, as they are making out. And they are doing this a lot, aren't they? They are making things to be more of a meal than they need to be. They really are. It's an interesting statement. And I think while we're reading statements, let's let's pull this out as well. So I said before, there are some people who are unsurprisingly very unhappy about this. So Epic, who have had this ongoing beef with Apple for a long time. In fact, they've pretty much lost it in all American courts up to this point. We're initially delighted to see that, that you know that there'd been this response to the DMA. But after a little bit of time to read it, Tim Sweeney, CEO of Epic, said, Apple's plan to thwart Europe's new Digital Markets Act law is a devious new instance of malicious compliance. Interesting word. They are forcing developers to choose between App Store exclusivity and the store terms, which will be illegal under DMA, or accept a new, also illegal, anti-competitive scheme rife with new junk fees and downloads and new Apple taxes on payments they don't process. So he is embedded. He's obviously very against anything Apple's going to do. But I quite like his term malicious compliance because in all the feedback from Apple, that's kind of the feeling I'm getting it. They're doing it. They absolutely do not want to be doing it, though. Yeah, which is a shame because if Apple was living by its morals... And the world they like to preach, they like to tell us how they do everything better than, than it needs to be. And they don't just do the minimum. Whereas every time there's a law, they are just doing the minimum. And it, it doesn't feel right, does it? It doesn't. And you said last week, just compete, Apple. And I, I 100% agree with that. If Safari is the best browser on the platform, people will use it. If the App Store is the best App Store that's secure, that's curated, that you find everything you search for that's not scamming you at monthly payments. You don't feel your children are potentially at risk of installing some gambling thing. You don't feel your two-factor authenticators are going to be hijacked by some nefarious actor. Then compete. And that's what they're standing up against. They're putting the App Store up as this perfect thing that's, you know, a glory field of green fields with the walled garden approach is the right thing to do. We trust Apple to do this kind of stuff for us. And time and again... They've kind of proven that they're not always right about that. And the wall garden's beginning to feel a bit like a prison, I think, some of the developers within this. Yeah, I agree with that. And they do need the competition. The competition will drive a better product, hopefully, over time. It does, yeah, it does feel like Apple are doing it in what then what we all now call the Appleist of ways. I think that is the problem, isn't it? And none of us can stand here 
and be and be happy with with some of the details. Um, I was trying to explain to my children why Fortnite is not on the App Store and what's going on, and it's quite hard to break this down to a twelve-year-old because like, why is it not there? I don't understand. It's on Windows. It's on the PlayStation. It's on the Xbox. It's on the Switch. Why can't I have it on my iPhone? Why isn't it on my iPad? And they just no. Obviously, try to explain some of the the politics. Then there's just no comprehension of it. It's really tricky. Yeah, and I just want to one more quote. I'm I'm into my reading my quotes this week. So Dan Maurin, who works with Jason Snell on over on Six Colors, ex journalist Mac, very much a, a well regarded figure in the Mac uh, community. I think his statement is quite telling about his sort of feelings on this. Apple's scary warnings about the risks created by the adoption of these new EU measures are frankly hilarious, given that this is basically the exact same system, notarization, sideloading, alternative app stores that has been in place on the Mac for years. And that's what sums it up to me, is that the internet, imagine if Tim Berners-Lee had done this actually when he created this version of the internet that we know, know and loved these days. It wouldn't have taken off in the way that it has. But we're very familiar with these kinds of things as computer users. Every computer user can go off, find a piece of software, install it, get on with it. Most of them can judge whether it's safe or not. And if it's not, there are safeguards in place by the platform vendor in many cases or through a third party to protect you from that. You go to reputable places. You use your credit card. You have payment protection. None of this is new. And Apple's fear-mongering for this, I think, is really sort of standing out. And I really don't like it. No, I don't like it. And... I said at the top, I think, why why didn't they do a video? Why didn't they walk people through this? The, the whole way they've presented it is, is a press release, off you go. I, I don't know. And I know they've spoken to some media outlets, but they're not speaking straight to the developers. I think that's wrong. You know, they should have done a lot more to walk people through it. It's None of it's good, is it? You know, you, you want your developers to be there. If you didn't have all your developers, you wouldn't have all the apps. If you didn't have all the apps, people wouldn't be using all your devices see vision pro because obviously there is a, a, a drought of certain apps and developers there so it's frustrating because in one breath they're trying to evangelize developers and get them on board and in the other breath they're not really helping them so it's they're not walking the line terribly well here totally and i think you've said that very well in a time where they've released a new device that's variable that's expensive and the one thing the vision pro has that none of these other third-party headsets do is an app store and that App Store should be the best that it can be because of the amazing tools that Apple has developed over the years on its own merit through the fantastic developers that have spent their blood, sweat and tears developing excellent apps that have pushed all of these platforms forward. I would say the iPad has failed to flourish because they don't let developers do what needs to be done with it. If they truly let that be an open device to install complicated apps and using mouse and keyboard, if you wanted, or being able to back up from it, if you wanted, the iPad would be far more successful as a computer, which is what they, well, as a device that's post-computer than it is now. And I worry the same about the Vision Pro, that they're just going to handicap it on their efforts of maintaining their platform dependency. And, and that's where it's beginning to fall apart from me. The, the Mac even though they're trying to do similar with that with sandboxing and, and it continually gets more restrictive. It's still a platform into which I can ignore all the warnings that are going to kill me and install an app that's going to be best for that particular platform. And I can get on and I can use it to the best of my ability. And I don't feel limited by that. And, and this is the true dichotomy between the Mac as a computer, which it is, and our other devices, which are computers, but they're not letting them be computers in the way that they were. And they're going to lose developers as a consequence. Yeah, what I don't understand though is why with Vision O, why is Vision OS not got the same 
problem that iOS has, and why is the iPad not got it? It's too small. That's it. Yep. Wow. Where's your cash go? Yeah. Where's your cash go? We we report on the quarterly results, and iPad sales are down or flat. People aren't replacing them, or you know they're replacing them on a far longer time scale than they are for other things. Apple TV is exactly the same. They've sold what 120,000 Vision Pros if they're lucky. That is a drop in the ocean. It's not an established platform. But how many hundred million iPhones are sold year in, year out? Billions, possibly at this point. It just seems crazy to me, though, that like the USB-C thing doesn't matter how many you sell. You've got the shit with USB-C on your on your on your products. Why do you not have to ship? With the you know the the walled garden being knocked down on all your OSs, it just seems very strange to me that they can pick and choose. And what a horrible experience! Because in the EU, then you could end up with a browser on your iPhone that's different to the browser on your iPad, even though it's got the same name, it's by the same company. They can have two strains of it ultimately. And I know we've got a link in the show notes to Mozilla commenting on that. They're now going to have to run two variants of their browser platform if if they want to use their own engine in Europe and you're going to probably be doing that assuming that it's going to grow and you'll be able to use it in America one day at some point when they when they open up the walled garden there. Um, yeah. I, it just feels, yeah, it feels the Apple's way of doing it. And obviously if you are trying to develop now, these, these boundaries may move over the next couple of weeks, assuming the EU and Apple move quickly to, to deal with any required changes or, or commentary. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks again. I mean, this was always going to come. And again, I'm not surprised. I'm going to say this from the outset. I'm not surprised that Apple's behaving like this. I, I'm disappointed. I, I hoped for more. In the same way we read the quote from Brent Simmons last week saying, you know, companies will behave like companies and Apple have behaved like a company, not like the way we'd like them. And we, we, we want them to have their ethics and their understanding and their respect for the developers and their respect for the customers. Apple's number one priority is Apple. And that is a hard thing for those of us who have been such champions of the platform, you know, to get over. Yeah, it, it is hard to stand by some of these decisions and go, yeah, makes perfect sense to me because it doesn't. Some developers are, you know, if your whole life is baked around the development of Apple platforms and Apple ecosystems using Apple tools, that's where we were 15 years ago, really. You know, we, I depended on Apple devices to get my work done. It was the, clearly the best way of getting going about and doing it. And for a long time, I've had that hangover, that impression in my head. I tested a Google phone about six months ago, and, oh, it's too slow. It didn't do this. It didn't do that. More than anything, it didn't work the way I expected a device like this to work because I'm embedded in my Apple way of thinking. And i got to think there's lots of developers, long-time developers on the platform, who feel very trapped by the conditions that Apple is imposing on them and and the restrictions that they're placing on them just because of where they live. And we know why the lawmakers will be looking at this going, you know, the Senate will look at this in America and go, hang on, that's a good bit of law. That's a bad bit of law. We can see how that worked out. I presume we'll do the same in the UK. We know the, the Japanese and the Koreans and certainly the Russians will look, will look at this in there and go, right, that worked, that didn't. And this will just get smashed apart. And I Apple's piecemeal approach to this, we've said it repeatedly, they should have got out in front of this. They should have polled developers, see what was happy, see what they could have got away with. If they'd moved to 17% fees 10 years ago, 
I bet they wouldn't be in the same position now. There'd be more developers. All right, 17% makes sense, given the tooling you give me, given the fact you host it all on your app stores, and maybe a bit more curation, maybe a bit more clarity about how things could go through app review to get to the point where they're on the app store. They could have been way out in front of this on all platforms, not just on iOS. But no, they've just sat there on their mountain of money, building the walls higher and higher and higher. Yeah, they brought a lot of this on themselves, and now they've done it in the least nicest way for everybody and i don't think anybody's winning at this the user won't win the developers won't win it's not a great look for apple so there are no winners out the back of this well maybe just microsoft because they can now do your xbox pass on an app they're the only winners because it's a global change done and it seems the most or the least controversial thing that's been announced the rest of it is all baked in a little bit of controversy because some of it's geo-locked some of it's um based upon the amount of money or whether you're in a free tier or, or you're going to sign the new T's and C's. Um, that was one question. I don't think I've got the answer. Um, if I lived in the EU, do I get the European you know, version of your app? And, and do you then receive, if you're in America, say, and you're a developer, do you then receive a higher margin? Or does it matter that you're based in Europe as the developer? That, that's the bit I, nobody's got the answer to that from what I've read. I don't know if you've seen that anywhere. I think it depends if you're an American developer. You're an American developer. It's where your bank's based. That's what what you're what you're going to get. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, so I didn't know if it was depending on when the end user was. Oh, you're selling to Europe, therefore Apple only take ten percent because your customer's European. If that makes sense. Yeah, I find it very depressing. And Craig Hockenberry, who is a longtime Mac, develop, Mac developer for lots of things, a prediction: the only viable marketplaces in a year will be for porn, piracy, and gambling. And Apple will be making a lot of money from them without explicitly endorsing the activities. It's going to be a goldmine because humans love sketchy content. And the only people who can afford the $50,000 a month or however much it's going to be are people who are exploiting other people. And that tends to be porn, gambling, and other things. And I find the whole thing very sad. Do you think this is just the start, though, that actually maybe a year from now this will be applied in more places and some of the wrongs will get righted or do you think this would just be it and maybe it's going to have low adoption because Apple, Apple have made their own App Store more appealing? I hope Apple make the App Store more appealing. I hope they respond in the right way to bring people back on site. I, their history has not said that this is going to be the way though. We'll have to see. I mean, it is interesting looking at the divide this has caused. There are entrenched Apple people who are saying, absolutely, they shouldn't be opening up this up. This is all their stuff. And then there are people who are really quite sad. I mean, you get people like Eugene Rochko, the creator of Mastodon, saying, if they continue in this path, I'm switching back to Android. You know, and, and to have the hearts and minds that Apple have had for as many years as they've had them, and they're just frittering it away. And Apple platforms are amazing because of the developers. That's why they're amazing. The tools are great, the devices are great, but to really live on those platforms, you've got to have the apps or the applications or the install base to make use of them. And if they chase those people away and you start getting excellent apps on Android, you start getting app excellent apps wherever they go, be it Windows, be it Linux, be it, it won't be Linux, but somewhere else, then users will go after them. And, and these massive profits that Apple report every quarter will start to go down. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there because it's the, thing, the reason we've got Apple products, they make great hardware, fantastic hardware, great OSs, sometimes not perfect, but great. And they've got a great developer community that develop great apps. How many apps do I use on my iPad every day that aren't first party? Most of the ones to get my job done are ruined by other companies, not Apple. 
but I need both. I need the hardware, the OS, and the app ecosystem. They're the three components of what makes makes me use these devices. And you're right, time, if that doesn't improve, would I go somewhere else? Quite possibly. Would I go back to Windows? Maybe for work. If it doesn't get better, I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It is tricky, and I think we can, we'll can. we button this section up and we'll go into something happier because it's 40 years of the Mac, and it'd be nice to talk about something happier as well. But for me, I can continue to use the Mac because I have more freedom over what I can choose to install. I'm not very comfortable with the idea of giving Apple lots of money for new Macs and things like that, but the Mac I've got is perfectly wonderful. I love it to bits. It's the be- one of the best Macs I've ever had. More on that in a minute. But I have the freedom to install what I want to install on it. Frankly, uh, you know, I, I was listening to the um, uh, the Reloaded podcast with uh, Dan Morin and others, actually. Um, and they were saying, if you had to give one up, would you go back to Windows or would you choose Android? And most of them said, I could go to Android. You know, they'd keep their Macs because that's where they're productive. That's where their apps are. That's what they're used to using. But actually, the division between iOS and Android isn't so great. And frankly, we should be using our phones less anyway. So of the two, and I thought, no, I'm 100% in the same boat. I'd go to Android before I'd give up my Mac. Oh, you've got you've got me scratching my head, if I'm honest. Only because I use my iPad and my iPhone nine percent for my job, and I do ten percent on my Mac, um, and that's largely recording a podcast with you, which which we did do on my iPad for it for a, a spell. So I'm probably in a slightly different place right now. But if I had a different job where I could use a Mac, I'd probably be in the same camp as you. Yeah, because you think those apps you rely on day in day out. You can have a podcast app. You can have a web browser. You can text people. You know, there are things you can do on a phone that, you know, you take my point. I think it's an interesting thought exercise to see what you could do with it. And the fear of leaving the ecosystem is the hardest thing. I've got Apple TVs everywhere. I wear an Apple Watch. I've got an iPhone. I've got an iPad, which I don't use very much. But the, the central thing for me is my Mac. I do my work on it. I write my papers on it. I do my research on it. I do Some of my leisure time is, is on it, gaming or whatever else it is. It's the device I rely on. And th- this whole thing has sent me down a, a bit of a, what do I do on a computer that couldn't be done somewhere else? And the, the reality is about 80%, I'd say, of the apps I use, I can fire up in a web browser and I can run them in there. So it could be Windows, it could be Linux, it could be a Chromebook, frankly. That is the reality of it. I wouldn't have as great an experience. I wouldn't enjoy it. The battery wouldn't be as long as a device. It wouldn't look as nice. All these things. But the reality is I could do most of my work somewhere else because let's face it, quite a lot of the world does. So we have got choice. And if Apple keep moving things around like this, I hate to think it. I hate to think it. But the reality is I could go somewhere else if I had to. Yeah, I don't disagree with that statement. Hopefully it will come good in the end, but I'm not holding my breath. No, I want them to do the right thing. And you know, I have a lot of history with this company now, which I think is a great segue into. Should we talk about something nice for a change? Yeah. This, so to summarise, we're not happy with the EU piece. Hopefully it will improve, but we're not holding our breath and we're now going to roll into years of the Mac. Yeah, four years of the Mac. So I have a, a lot, as as see, see the whole last section, I think Chris and I both have a lot of time, a lot of respect and a lot of hours put in on Macs. And, you know, it is a computer I loved as opposed to a computer I used for a long time. And I've just thought we'd I'd highlight some, or we could highlight some sections about some things we thought would be were high points for us, specifically for the Mac. So not Apple Twos, not iPhones, not iPads, not TVs, Macintoshes. What's blowing my mind here 
is I've been using the Mac for half of the Mac's existence. So I came in when the Mac was 20 years old. It's incredible. It's been around a very long time. So the Macintosh was released by Steve Jobs in, well, 1984. It was kind of a sub-project of the Lisa initiative. So they were going to have a graphical user interface. It wasn't the Lisa. The Lisa was its own thing that failed very quickly afterwards, but was an amazing computer in and of itself, had a hard drive, decent bit of memory and all the rest of it. And the Mac was a very cut down, slightly edited version of of the Lisa. And it was a terrific computer. It was revolutionary. Uh, It took... it, it took a lot of ideas that were seen in other places and people really just took to it and it really drove the next generation of computing. The first mass market adoption of graphical user interfaces. It had a floppy drive in it as standard. Uh, it, it was a black and white screen. You know, it was an amazing little computer and it gave a great demo and it very quickly became, a, I think it started with 128K single single density floppy disk and very quickly was 512K double density floppy disks, hard disks and then the sky was the limit. It just took off from there. It was a couple of dodgy years in the 90s, early to late 90s to mid 90s before Steve Jobs came back and and sort of really saved the company. And that's about the point I got into it, just at the tail end of the beige thing, just as Steve Jobs was coming back to the company. And you were like a year after me. Probably, yeah, slightly after you in that they were going to get out of, you know, having their colourful Macs and start going down the white silver avenue. That's probably the point where I got, got involved. Yeah. So I thought we'd have a couple of sections we would do our first mac we owned not had a use of not you know was owned by a spouse or a partner or something like that the first mac you owned the favorite mac you owned and then the best mac you owned and then given what we've just been talking about the top four pieces of software that sort of really made you think about what what the mac was and why you used it so you go first then chris what was the first mac you owned so the first one i owned was an ibook g3 which was different to yours mine was white it was a slightly newer version. It was a 12-inch one. It was so, well, I say small. It was obviously weighed quite a bit compared to today. But at the time, it was a really small computer I had at university. I love this thing. But the only reason I got it was because, I don't know, three months previous, I bought a PC in PC World here in the UK, and I had problems with it. And I took it back, and they gave me all my money back to spend in store. And so I converted my PC laptop, in essence, with the same amount of money into this iBook um, and I absolutely love that thing because it was my first Mac. It ran OS 10.2 Jaguar. It was just as, I think that was the one that really got OS 10 on its way, if that makes sense. It was, you know, it, it was what the third release. And so OS 10 was getting better. But it was just a great little device. And it was so different to anything I'd used before. And I was just going through that part where I wasn't playing as many games. So, so the gaming bit didn't really worry me. I needed to do work, browse the internet take to university every day um what a device i loved it because it was portable it was always in my pocket but it looked different all of my friends had pcs apart from you and so it looked different it stood out in a cool way and it looked great the white crisp but was it polycarbon i can't remember what it was made out of but it just looked fantastic so that, that was my first mac and that really got me on my way for at that point i was converted yeah it was a good good machine that they took so we both had G3 Max was the first one. My first one was an iBook G3, the 366 special edition model of the toilet seat iBook. Uh, so-called because it had a handle and if you held it with a handle, it looked a little bit like a toilet seat. It was grey as opposed to some of the sort of fancier colours that uh, the other iBooks were. 800 by 600 screen, also 12.1 inches. 800 by 600. It's amazing to think we used to live with screen dimensions of that sort of thing. Yeah, it's mad now, isn't it, looking back? I bought an airport card for it. It didn't come with wireless networking. I had to plug a network 
cable into it. In fact, I think the first time you and I met, I was trying to figure out how to connect it to the university wired network. Yeah, same on mine. Actually, I had to pop the key, lift the key, you had two little catch on the keyboard, and you could pop an airport card in. It, it was really well done. And you literally just pop the card in and then plug the antenna in, and off you go. Yep. And it came with iOS 9.6, I want to say. It certainly didn't come with iOS, with OS 10 at that point. I had to upgrade it, and I remember running the betas of OS 10 on my iBook. Yeah, and obviously installing betas back then was a little fraught than it is now. It was a bit. It came with a CD-ROM drive. You had to burn it with CD-ROM, and you installed it from that. I got quite used to looking at the little flashing folder prompt with a question mark on it when you'd boot your Mac, and it wouldn't know what drive to boot from. That might even predate your knowledge of Macs. No, I have seen that. I was just trying to remember now. I don't think mine had it. But I think mine did have a tray that popped out, whereas obviously later Macs just had a nice slot that you, you popped a disc into. Yeah, it was a terrific machine. It was the first one that was truly mine. I used it all through, well, for the first two years of university on a computer science degree. I remember it wasn't called Xcode at that point. It was Interface Builder and Developer Tools developer tools to do some C uh, programming homework that we had, some Pascal programming homework that we had, and Java as well. I remember sitting in the back of cars typing code on that thing on on not a very big screen without access to the internet. And that's just my, boggles my mind these days. I can't type a line of code without having a browser open somewhere. Yeah, I think we've, we've just got relying on having help from other parties rather than just trying to figure it out and using the compiler. Yeah. Four megabytes of RAM and a six gigabyte hard disk. Wow, that does feel like a literal lifetime ago. It really does. But I loved that thing. I thought it was a terrific way. And and yours was just mine, but looked a lot more sleek, really. You know, it was squared off, white polycarbonate. Both of them did the trick when they were asleep. The power lights would pulse on them, you know, as if they were breathing in deep sleep. And they also both had the little button you could push on the battery to see how much charge they had in them. Uh, it was also good and if you took the battery out i think you could replace the hard drive in that model you know it was just a great device had a little bit of user serviceability really well done but no i I think you're right the internals were more or less the same between mine and yours mine was just a newer case so that was my first mac but then turning to my favorite mac uh i very quickly afterwards in my final year of the computer science degree i bought a titanium powerbook g4 uh which was just to this day, I remember it as just being a stand-up computer. It was so powerful compared to the G3. The G4 was really a quantum leap above. I think it had a DVD drive instead of a CD drive. Just everything about it was better. It had a little door that the port said behind. And I remember bringing it into a, a, a class that day and just everybody gathering around this Parabook G4 because it was absolutely the machine to have. I thought it was pretty cool. It was cool, and nobody really had them. I mean, this was at a time where Macs just were not as prevalent as they are now. There were, I don't know, out of all of us on our IT course, you know, computer science course, there were, you know, the Mac users were in the minority, 100%. Absolutely. So this thing was a 15-inch screen. It had 1280 by something. I can't remember exactly the dimensions. And it was a widescreen, wasn't it? It was a widescreen, and it was a real. Ju- it was a quantum leap above. This was at a time when every time you bought a computer, it was better than what came before, and that's not always the way anymore. I went from a G3 to a G4, and it wasn't just a little bit better. I'd say it was ten times better. Oh yeah, it was revolutionary. It was a, just a, a terrific machine. I loved everything about it, and I used that that computer for a very long time. It was my laptop for a long time. I seem to remember you were so impressed with it, you went and bought a seventeen-inch version of it eventually. Eventually, but not the titanium. 
I went into the, the into the aluminium power book. Wow. So what was your favourite Mac? So mine, it's similar timeline to yours, was actually probably when you had that, I bought a G4 17-inch iMac. And this is what they call the angle poise one, where you could put the screen wherever you want it. It came with some little Harman Kardon speakers. It had a nice full-size keyboard. It was just great. You know, doing your work, you know, working on it was a, a delight, if that makes sense. I remember doing my dissertation on it. It was just a fantastic device. It looked great. Again, it looked completely different. And I still maintain it's probably one of the best, I was going to say the best screen. The screen's not the right because obviously the screen technology's moved on. But the best mechanism to get the screen exactly where you wanted it for your comfort. You could have it up, you could have it down, you could put it in the middle. It was just a really nice design, really functional. And it was function and design together and it worked really well. Whereas I'm looking around at my screens now, none of them move as the, as that one did or you could have it at the right angle. They they're just not as well designed that angle poise was amazing and it's a shame they only used it on one on one one product class for a short period of time really in hindsight whereas the foot iMac went on for about 13 14 years if not longer and yet they could have done a height adjustable one but they never did but no it was a fantastic mac and i just had fond memories of using it. like i say using it was a delight and that's why i put it in my favorite mac no, it was a truly dynamic computer. You know, you actually felt like the computer, you had affection for the computer. I, I'm 100% with you. This was the last true iMac as far as I'm concerned. They became quite a soulless, just the guts hang on the back of the display after this one. This had character, it was well engineered and designed. They did have a very slight flaw where they sort of nodded slightly to one side, the screens would go a little bit, which actually looked like a puppy looking at you. You know, it was just, it was a charming, well-designed, well-built, easy to upgrade it was quite reasonable to get at the ram and stuff like that within them as well can you imagine a mac these days being able to get at and get at the bits and pieces within it i'm with you this was a terrific machine it looked great it was really standout for me because lcds and, and those kinds of display technology were still relatively rare the imac was still a thing it had well that's why the original the imac before this was a tv screen you know they were big they were heavy most computer monitors were of the same sort of generation. A 21-inch computer monitor was a vast thing you stuck on your desk. And this was just a light, felt, well-designed computer. I think it's a terrific choice. Oh, it was awesome. And like I say, the little Harman Kardon speakers that matched with it, the whole package was really cool. Opening the box was quite an experience. It was just so well done. Everything, I loved it. And that sealed my future with Apple products, I think. Yep. Moving along the best Mac you ever owned. Now, this is a tricky one for me because, frankly, the MacBooks, MacBook Pros, M1, M2, M3, are just such phenomenal computers these days that it'd be very easy to say, best Mac I've ever owned is the one I've got right now. But thinking back, for me, the best Mac I've ever owned was my 2006 Intel Mac Pro. I've put in the show notes G5 Mac Pro, that's incorrect. It was the first-generation Intel Mac Pro that I had with Xeons that was just such a powerful machine. I could dual boot it with Windows. That was quite a novelty at the time because they were running Intel spec chips. We were all really surprised. More open Apple gave us Bootcamp Assistant so we could install Windows and another drive in there. We had almost comparable graphics cards to Windows ones for a little bit. ATI only, not NVIDIA, before Apple fell out with NVIDIA. A terrific machine that, that was. And everything about it I liked. I liked the huge tower design, which was mostly empty. But it had a door with one lever that you popped off and you could get at the guts of the computer. It had handles. 
cut your hands a little bit if you picked it up because it was heavy. You know, it was easy to pick it up and it was portable. It was beautifully machined. If you wanted to upgrade the RAM in it, they were on separate little daughter cards. You could slide out and just pop in another bit of RAM. It was really expensive because it was ECC RAM at the time. Uh, it had four drive bays along the top of it, which with little runners, and you just put two runners in and you could just push them into the chassis of the machine. It was just such a beautifully designed machine. I used it in Windows. I used it as a Mac. I, I my, my first job in the back in the NHS. I used it for all sorts of work stuff. I did development on it. I built websites with it. I played games on it. It was just everything I wanted to be. And it was my first cinema studio display. Studio display? Cinema display. Whatever it was called at that point as well. 23-inch cinema display. Also with the pulsing light when the Mac was asleep. It was just a terrific machine. Cinema display back then. Studio display only came 18 months ago, give or take. I had one of these too. It was a fantastic, it was a fantastic device. I didn't put it as my best Mac because I just don't think I used it enough. But this was the time when you could buy a Mac Pro for sub £2,000, which they currently retail about seven. So it gives you an idea for what you're getting. And to me, it was a lot of money at the time, but it was a fantastic device. All the upgradability that you said you could buy it and you knew you could keep it for, say, four years and it would work because you could put different cards in it different drives it was expandable it was a lot of money but it was fantastic and you could start off with other screens and then if you wanted to buy an apple screen i never really had an apple screen until i bought my studio display but it was a, no that was a great mac the design was amazing it was a little big i lived in a very small house at the time and had this massive mac pro so it it did take up some floor space but yeah it was a beautiful thing yeah, that evolution of the G3 tower with the rounded handles and blue and white like the iMac to the G4 quick tower and then the Quicksilver towers with the mirror drive doors, which went grey. Apple very quickly got out of their colour side of things and, and went sort of very boring and professional in the pro line, as we've talked about before. But that just silver box that the, that the G5 uh, tower had been in, which the Intel guts got put into for this particular one. But it was just terrific. And you can kind of see the design language continues with the current Mac Pro. The current Mac Pro isn't a Mac Pro. It's a Mac Studio in a, bo- in a slightly empty box. But uh, yeah, that was the last true Intel Mac Pro for me. Before the trash cans, before it all, all started to go wrong. That was a terrific computer. I don't disagree. I do think the 2019 Mac Pro was homage back to those days they did a good job with it you could expand it 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 was pretty good obviously the the more common one i know it's in the same box is nowhere near it because it's just not the options anymore but i think 2019 they did a good job too expensive i don't disagree with that statement tell us about your 2021 macbook pro so i've actually gone for my most recent device a the performance is insane on this thing it's an m1 max thing i'm not even thinking about replacing it i don't use it enough to be fair but every time i look at it oh i just think it looks amazing i love i've got the silver one it's got the black apple logo on it it's got the black keyboard i just think it's a cracking piece of hardware it just looks fantastic you've got the huge trackpad it's got all the right ports on it you know we've got USB-C, which i do love but it's got my MagSafe back i've got hdmi it's got the sd card reader the screen is insane it's got promotion on it I just think it's a fantastic-looking device. Um, mine's quite well spec. It's got I don't know 32 gig of RAM and a terabyte hard drive. That is it for me. That machine's over spec, but I know it will last me a long time. I just think it's beautiful, though. It's just the industrial design is so good. They really nailed it, I think, because when we first got M1 Max, they all looked a bit the same because they were the same. But 
that was the first time where you really saw what the new design language was going to look like. And all they did was just tweak the silver shape a little bit. And and like I said, I think it looks fantastic. I do wish they would bring back the glowing Apple logo on the back of the screen because that was cool. Especially when you'd see a shot of like a lecture theatre. Everybody had a Mac with a glowing Apple logo. I'm amazed they took it away. I understand they did it for the thinness of the screen. But there's some clever people at Apple. You would have thought by now they would have made they'd made a way to bring that back. And I, I reckon they will. it will come back one day. It's got to, surely. But I just thought that was fantastic. It wasn't just the thinness, was it? You could actually, in the right lighting conditions, see the Apple logo through your screen on the other side too. Oh, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And then they turned it the right way up at some point as well. It used to be upside down, so when you were the laptop was closed, the Apple logo was facing you. Whereas now it's flipped around the other way, so somebody looking at it can see it. And I didn't really mind that. I remember it being slightly controversial at the time. I'm with you on this computer. I mean, I have an M1 MacBook Pro as well. It is, it's a terrific machine. It does everything incredibly well. We're recording this podcast on it right now. It can take everything I throw at it. It's more power than even me as a fairly rubbish developer can ever really pull out of it. It's it's a terrific machine, and it's the first machine I've been able to use as a desktop as well as a laptop. Most laptops, I've had a laptop and a desktop and tried to do some sort of syncing thing in with them. No, I carry it to work with me. It's a bit big and heavy because it's the 16-inch one. But the weight's not insane. I'm used to carrying much heavier laptops over the years. This Probably my G4 toilet, G3 toilet seat one was, was heavier than this, for goodness sake. It's a terrific machine. It's not the best Mac for the reasons I've been through, but it is an absolutely wonderful Macintosh. Yeah, I've, I think they've got back to the spirit that they used to make these things in. I think it is fantastic. Yeah, I'm very happy with it. And like I said, I know it will... It can do everything I want, but even when it's just sat on the side, I just think it looks stunning. I just, I don't know why, it just looks cracking. I'm glad that after the horror years of the butterfly keyboard, we've now got Macs that are respectable again. And that you can recommend. Go and buy any form of Apple Silicon Mac. You'll be pretty happy with it. Well, the cheapest one, you know, the M1, M2 MacBook Airs are probably the best Macs. They're the ones that most people should buy, 100%. Yep. So why do we? Why did we get into Max then? What were our top four pieces of software? Do you want to take us through yours first? Uh, okay, yeah, I can do it. So I started with Safari. I remember that coming out. I love Safari when it came out. Can we still remember version one now? Because I think it came out on the Jaguar Panther era. I could, I could be misremembering, but I thought it was fantastic. And it came in brushed aluminium, which I brushed chrome. I can't remember what they called it. Brushed steel. That's what they called it. I think. And I just thought the interface looked fantastic. It was nice and clean. It was really fast at a time when the internet was very slow. So that put, that was probably the key for me that got me really going. And then there was iTunes. Remember you used to... I'm going to come in on Safari, actually. I think we underestimate the importance of Safari. Browsers on the Mac sucked. Oh, yeah. They you sucked know, a lot. I forgot to mention the, that. They really sucked. Internet Explorer on the Mac was a terrible... It was, That's not fair. It wasn't a terrible piece of software. I think the Mac business unit at Microsoft did the best they could with that browser. But it wasn't Internet Explorer on Windows. And everything at that time was in, optimized for Internet Explorer on Windows. So for Apple to come out the gate with as good a browser specifically for the Mac as Safari was... I wouldn't go so far as to say it saved the company, but it absolutely contributed to them being a success on the web at a time it really needed to be. Yeah, adhere to all the standards and IE on the PC did not adhere to all the standards and so I think it drove and helped towards the Chromes, the Firefoxes and then ultimately Microsoft getting towards being standards compliant but it was just such a great app 
IE on the Mac was a good app, but it was a slow app. It was kind of cool though because it was different, and I did like that. But it just didn't move. With, it reached a point where it just didn't move with the times. So no, Safari was massive for me. And then next one I put down was iTunes. I had to think in my head: was it called iTunes? I can't remember what it was called. And I'm not really talking about the iTunes Store here. It was just more having all your music and cataloging all your music and putting the album art in. I used to love doing that. I ripped all my CDs and just that that first sort of sense of having the digital library iTunes was awesome for that. You could take Wii Music with you. Um, I just thought it was really good. Genuinely really enjoyed it. I've also included numbers. I wrote slash pages because I've never been a heavy keynote user. And I'm not a crazy huge numbers pages user. But I love those pieces of software. And I love that they're on my Mac and on my iPad. um, And they work really well. And I use them a lot for home documents. And I don't need to buy a license for Microsoft to use at home. These, These products are, I think, really good. They're really lightweight and they've moved through the times. I just think they're really good apps and they're so easy to use and drag things around and change the colors. You know, very intuitive to use in a way that I've struggled with Word and Excel more lately in that you've got the ribbon and you've got to remember where the options are. And I just think they're they're really good apps and I think they're good Mac apps even 20 years later. Well, they're probably not 20 years old at this point. They're probably like 15 years old, I think, because Steve Jobs introduced iWork, if I remember correctly. So I just think they're really good apps. And they, for me, they do a great job of home productivity. And then I've rounded it out with Xcode. While I'm not a developer, I do fire up Xcode and dabble with it. And what a hell of an app that is. I think it's really good. I like playing with it. And it always moves with the times. And I just quite like it. It got me into doing a bit more coding. And if ever I want to just go and play with something, I go and in Xcode. I've never released anything, but I do like playing with it. So that was my top four. Fair enough. I mean, it's interesting, I think, what brings you to the Mac. And in common on this list, we have iTunes. And I think iTunes is underestimated. It used to be a really good app. It used to be a really good app. And it had a bit of whimsy in it at the start as well. Before the days of Apple Music and us being able to stream things, and before Spotify and all the rest of it, all we had was our local music library. I spent a long time ripping my CDs into iTunes and, and into a Windows counterpart before that. Going through CDs, I had a stack of them next to me and I'd just sit and rip it. And it, it one of the original adverts for, the, I think it was the second generation of iMac, maybe the third generation of iMac, the DV, when it came with the DVD burner, was Rip, Mix, Burn. And, and that iTunes was instrumental in doing that, ripping your things off CDs, mixing them into new CDs and then burning them onto your own playlists and things so you could live it. And then... If you remember this, it had a little nuclear icon in iTunes. So if you had a writable CD in there, you could make up your playlist. You drag your playlist to a little thing, and iTunes would burn that CD for you as well. It was a great piece of software for managing your music. It had some lovely visualizations. If you want to have your Mac in the corner of your bedroom or whatever, playing away, and there were some fantastic visualizations for what was going on there. And then it became the gateway to the iPod. And for the first couple of generations of the iPod, it maintained that sort of really solid structure as a great application where those playlists went on the iPod. And I think at that point it broke when it became a Windows app as well and it tried to become an everything app. It fell apart. But it was absolutely in the early days of OS X and the early days of CD burning and all the rest of it. It was pivotal to the Mac success, along with Safari, but it predated Safari even. And Apple didn't write iTunes. They bought it off someone else, but they made it their own. And it was a really well-written, properly Mac-y piece of software that was so flexible for your music library and things that you could do with it. I'm with you. It's on my list for the same reasons. It was a terrific piece of software. Yeah, and I'm amazed that Apple haven't really sorted out music on the Mac now because 
they've started taking bits out of it, but they've never really harmonized what is a music app on the Mac with what is music on the iPad and the phone. And you've you've just ended up duplicating the app in essence because they've made the TV app and they really should have invested in their technical debt. So it's a shame really that the app hasn't had the investment in more recent years that it probably should have had to modernise it. It was also interesting, do you remember that iTunes used to get like visual changes first and at one point they moved the traffic light buttons to be vertical and things. And it was like, whoa, what's going on here? So um, that always was quite interesting because it was that app that they really invested and it probably had the most effort outside of the operating system spent on it because it was so important to them as a company. Definitely. So my other apps, and two of them aren't Apple apps because I think that was the power of the platform. It was the developers would bring things that would make you want to use Max for that weren't first-party apps. The one other one that is a first-party app is iMovie, and I remember back in the day buying a, a DV camcorder that could be controlled by FireWire. This was in the times of tapes on, on cameras, and I could plug a cable into my camcorder, and I could control the camcorder with the computer forwards, backwards, rip the video onto a very small hard drive at very low definition, onto the hard drive of the computer, and I could edit it, and I could make up my own semi-professional little um, movies. In fact, I think I recorded and edited your wedding, Chris. You did? Uh, I was quite good with iMovie for a little while, i got to say. I think it was a terrific app that brought people at a time when digital media was burgeoning and they were starting to capture those kind of things and made it accessible. Making non-destructive video editing accessible was a major achievement. And every time you'd get WWDC or you'd get an upgrade to the operating system and they'd give you a bit more, I'll use the word again deliberately, whimsy, trying to do your little travel video where you went on a drive and putting maps into the place as transitions so you could see where you went on your holiday and all that kind of stuff. That power was something Apple really had, that they could take these simple things in relatively moderately expensive computers, but the software came with it, and the software sold these great devices, and that only got better. And now iMovie, I feel, is a forgotten thing that sits in the corner. Your TikToks and your Instagrams have replaced iMovie. There's so much good commodity video editing software out there. But for a long time, I think iMovie was a real standard bearer for the Mac. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I must confess, I was never a video person. I, I never had that gene to want to do it. But I know a few few people like yourself that had that platform at that time really enjoyed making videos. And just it, it was such a good tool because it made it accessible. And I think that was one of Apple's skills, wasn't it, is they could make these things accessible. Totally. And that Genesis went on to Final Cut Pro and went on to the other things. And if you think of the Adobe Premiere tools that are on the Mac now, I very much doubt they'd be as good as they are without things like iMovie. Up- upgrading the skills of even an amateur video editor. Yeah, that's fair. I think that is fair. I've, it's just, yeah, something I've never had, had that interest in. But it, it was a great thing. The whole iLife suite, which obviously is long gone now, really. Same with iWork and you know those two suites kind of passed away but some of the apps still live on they do so two more just to mention an honorable mention as must always be done for one password which was a mac app first it's since become an enterprise app it is available everywhere and on the web and on your linux machine and on your windows box and on your phone and your android phone and blah 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 but its original versions it was just a terrifically well thought through mac app it made the act of password curation creation and management simple and I think it's maintained that. I'm less keen on the way it's gone Electron. I don't have the problems with it. Some other Mac pundits do. But I just think, particularly in its early days, it's maintained a level of security, accessibility that very few apps manage. And again, 
a real sort of standard bearer to bring people to the Mac. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do use one password today. I must confess, whilst it is Electron, I wouldn't notice it. But I don't use the Mac all day, every day. It's a fantastic app on all platforms, I think, to be fair. Yeah, but the standard bearer was the Mac. And then lastly for me, the Omni Group are long-time Mac developers. They developed for Next Step back in the day before the Mac OS, as Mac OS was the Mac OS as we know it. It was on Steve Jobs' Next platform, and Omni Group developed for, uh, for that in Objective-C, and they developed a couple of apps. And one of the ones that came from that was an app called OmniGraffle, which is diagramming map, as well as a couple of other. But OmniGraffle, for me, was the one that I had to have, and it became a reason to have a Mac. You know, the ability when you're writing research sort of diagrams and things like that, or just trying to explain something as a project manager or, or having that accessible diagramming for people. OmniGraffle did the very simple thing of, if you connected an arrow to a shape, it would rubber band. And to this day, very few apps actually managed to do that. PowerPoint kind of does it a little bit now. But the ability to do that and, and have your thoughts come to life in a diagrammatic form in such an accessible way that actually look beautiful. OmniGraffle gave us that from its very earliest versions, and I've got a lot of time for Omni apps. They're very expensive, but generally they're worth it. They are they are pricey, but I was just looking on their website now, and it's very interesting because actually the four apps they sell, OmniFocus, OmniPlan, OmniGraffle, OmniOutliner, they've probably done those four apps for the last 20 years or so. And they're normally good platform citizens. They normally keep up with the latest you know, style, trends, and you can buy one, and it will last for a long time. It is not cheap, but... They are good apps and they last for a long time and they're well supported. I think the problem I've always had is I've never used my Mac for work because I've always worked at corporate companies that don't support Macs. That's probably the, the problem I've had and therefore I just haven't got the, the breadth of knowledge that you have around you know third-party apps because I will use it for my you know my my own personal computing rather than yeah like I say in a corporate space. I think it's been both things for me. That's why I'm so feel so robbed. I think about all the stuff we were talking about earlier with Apple and the EU. You know, I've made a living from working with Macs, and you know, I think they've made me significantly more productive than I'd have been on anything else. But also, I've used them for home things as well. Uh, you know, as a machine to tinker with, as a machine to learn on, as a machine to push forward. And these apps enabled an awful lot of that for me. So yeah, I have fun memories of a lot of these bits of software. So yeah. No, I, I get it. And like talking about iTunes. I- back a, a lot of memories of you like say university when i was putting off revising and thought i'll oh, just rip all my cd collection and label it nicely and, and it was amazing because you could download the names of the tracks from the internet and the album art and things it was it was quite a time it was a time so there we go a little trip down memory lane and who knows maybe in 10 years time we'll still have a podcast and we'll do 50 years since the mac was launched that's a scary thought isn't it it really is anything else on the main show no i don't think so i think we've covered it Okay, let's let's do our traditional polishing up then. I will recommend an app of the week. This week, my app of the week is Word Feud, which I haven't mentioned before. It's basically Scrabble. There used to be a thing on uh, all the platforms called Words with Friends, which was quite popular for a while before some scammy developer took it over. And basically, it's a gateway to Facebook and other things, I think. Word Feud is, there is a free version of it and there is a paid for version. The paid for version isn't very expensive. It's an in-app purchase that gets rid of some adverts. It's just a very clean, easy-to-play Scrabble game. If you've got a couple of friends that you want to play Scrabble with and you don't want to be pestered with all the awful mank that comes associated with Words with Friends, it's well worth a purchase Word Feud. It's cross-platform, it's on Android, it's on iOS. It's a terrific app. If you want a game of Scrabble, get Word Feud. Link in the show notes. That was a good sale. Thank you. What's your thing of the week? Uh, I've actually gone with my Kindle Scribe case. 
because like, I'm denied about buying this. It's £50, which is quite a lot for a case. But actually, do you know what? It's really nicely made. And so I thought anybody out there with their Kindle, um, this is for the scribe, but they, they do do others. The actual first party Kindle case is just a really nice, nice case. It's really well made. It works really well. It, it, you lift the, the, the lid on it and it turns on the Kindle like an iPad used to. It's just generally a really nice, nicely made thing. And it wears quite well in my rucksack. I've had it for a couple of months now. So whilst not, like I say, exciting, that's what I would recommend. I got it in the blue. I think it looks cool. Fair enough. Bonus content for YouTube watchers. This is the state of my fine woven case, which I can now show on video. So if you do go to YouTube and you check us out there, you can see the state of that just with sort of three weeks in the pocket, maybe four weeks in the pocket. And it, my blur's it, not doing any. It looks dirty. Doesn't it? Just not look good, does it? You've never had an Apple leather case that did that so quickly, have you? That's not, it's not nice, is it? It just looks dirty. That's what I mean. It, and you're usually a very hygienic person and well turned out and your phone does not resemble you. Uh, I'm not a mechanic. I don't have oily hands. That's just going in and out of my pocket and picking it up. Yeah, it's not a good advert, is it? It's not. Do you want to wrap us up, Chris? Yeah, why not? So that's the end of the show. If anybody wants to get into contact with us, Rod is at gmaniac at maston.scot. I'm at underscore cgp at maston.social. Or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. <laughs>